Hello and welcome. This is Dr. Stuart Tully for History 327. Uh, today we're going to be starting out. We're going to be starting off the class uh, with the pre-Cold War status quo. The three, the pre-Cold War status quo. You can download the PowerPoint. You can open up the PowerPoint. It's a very quick one. Not a lot of pictures. Not as, not as uh, I want to say is in depth. It's it's pretty in depth, but uh, not not as flashy as some of my later ones. Still. This one's also going to be a little bit of a shorter lecture, uh, mainly because we are talking about what the um, United States was like prior to the Cold War. Prior to 1945, what is the pre-Cold War status quo for the United States? So, go and go ahead. Uh, today we're talking more philosophical, uh, less hard numbers, less hard information, less concrete facts. Uh, these are all more ethereal. Now, the Cold War comes pretty much directly out of World War II. The Cold War comes pretty much directly out of Cold, uh, World War II. Uh, and basically, World War II is a bit of an aberration in U.S. history because prior to World War II, uh, you're going to be looking at some of the main isms within the United States, some of the main isms within the United States. Uh, the first one is conservatism. Uh, the United States tends to be, throughout its history, a very conservative place. Uh, lowercase c conservative, not uppercase c. I'm not saying like the conservative party or Republican or right wing or anything like that, but conservative in the sense of, you know, don't rock the boat too much, don't do anything too drastically, more like the opposite of radical conservative. You know, yes, the U.S. does begin out of a revolution, but after the revolution, the U.S. is fairly slow going and doing things like uh, dramatically changing the country, uh, giving people full rights. Uh, primo example is African-Americans. They had been freed from slavery in 1865. And yet by the time we get to the 1940s, uh, they're not full, I mean, they are full citizens, but there are a lot of civil rights that African-Americans are not able to get. Voting is a big one. Uh, they're still very much oppressed. And that's pretty much the United States being very slow to the change of maybe there should, maybe we should have equality between black and white people. Many other things. Financially, the U.S. tends to be very conservative. Um, you know, there's uh, this idea that we don't like to do deficit spending, uh, this idea that, you know, we will only spend the money, uh, it, that we earn in taxes. We're, we're not going to be borrowing that much money or giving out too many loans or bonds. Uh, very much, I don't rock the boat type place. And that tends to be the U.S.'s uh, default uh, throughout history. Throughout history, you're going to see this come into play uh, in this class even, because even though it begins with this kind of uh, neoliberalism, kind of uh, post-war liberalism, you know, this idea that uh, with Truman, and even a little bit with Eisenhower, you get this, especially with Kennedy, this kind of like, you know, okay, we can solve all the world's problems by spending money, and this kind of like very liberal, open sense. Uh, once you get into Nixon and post-Nixon, the United States really goes a little bit more conservative, a little bit more conservative, uh, less radical change, less radical change, which dovetails in very nicely to the other main ism within the United States in this time period, uh, sorry, prior to World War II, is isolationism. Isolationism is also oftentimes the default in U.S. history. Uh, 1945 to present is kind of a, once again, kind of an aberration in U.S. history because it's very concerned with foreign affairs. Uh, prior to this time, the default setting for most Americans, and particularly American politicians, is isolation. We don't get involved with the affairs of Europe. We don't get involved with the affairs of England. We don't get involved with the affairs of France or whatever. 
Uh, we are very content to deal with our own continent. We're very content to deal with our own continent. The affairs of what's going on across the ocean, they don't matter too, too much. Uh, part of that is just part of the geography of the United States. Um, yes, we do not begin from sea to shining sea, and I, I'm not insinuating that Native Americans are not, you know, uh, um, a foreign power. They are. Likewise, even outside of the Native Americans, you know, uh, there are other people who have land claims for the longest time. You know, we're, we're getting territory from Spain and, you know, the West Coast, uh, Europe, uh, not Europe, sorry, Russia has some, England has some other land claims there. But that said, the U.S., geographically is fairly isolated. Geographically, the U.S. is fairly isolated from the rest of the world. We only have two countries that border us. We only have two countries that border us. And for most of U.S. history, we have a very stable border with both those countries. It's actually remarkable how few wars we've had with Canada and Mexico. Uh, we've pretty much only had one war with Canada, the, the War of 1812, which... Um, I guess you could call it a truce or a ceasefire, not a ceasefire, kind of a, kind of a let. Nobody really wins this one. And then likewise, Mexico. I mean, yes, the, the last declared war with Mexico was the Mexican-American War in the 1830s. You do have Pancho Villa doing his stuff in the 19-teens, but he doesn't really count. He's not really the government of Mexico. He's just a Mexican um, individual doing this stuff. So, remarkably, the U.S. has very, very stable borders. Geographically, it's a very diverse landscape. Uh, the United States is a very large country in terms of size. And in population, too. Uh, only a few countries have a larger population than the United States. But the United States seems to be a very large, geographically diverse, but also geographically large country with a fairly sizable population, but not a population that's particularly dense. Uh, specifically, when you talk about the West Coast, um, you know, land there is fairly cheap. Um, you know, living space is quite a bit larger. You know, you can spread out a bit more in the United States. And the U.S. has a lot of minerals and resources. That's another thing. The United States, uh, because it's so large, embodies a lot of different biomes, a lot of different, you know, um, geographical features, and a lot of different geographical resources. Uh, theoretically, the United States doesn't really need to trade with anybody else for resources. Pretty much the U.S. has pretty much everything it needs. It's got wood, it's got, you know, minerals, it's got oil, uh, plenty of food stuff. Some of the best farmland on Earth is within the United States. And all this kind of comes together to make the U.S. very isolated, very isolationist in the, ten, in the sense that for most of American history, most American politicians and the American general public is content not to mess around with Europe, not to mess around too much with Asia. Except, and this is where it gets to the next one, when it comes to selling stuff. When it comes to selling stuff. You call it capitalism, industrialism, um, salesmanism. I guess that's the, the ism there. Uh, the U.S. is very interested in maintaining its economic presence in other parts of the world. When I say the U.S. is not too concerned with the affairs of Europe, that's true, nor the affairs of Asia, not on the political sense. But they do want to make very sure that whoever's in charge of these various places, the U.S. is able to sell to them. Uh, the U.S. is able to sell to them. It's the idea that we have all these wonderful resources. We have all these industries. We have all these ways that people can make money. And you know what? We have so much we need to share with the world. We need to share with the world all these all these wonderful things. You know, share share the wealth and get money from it. Not necessarily share the wealth in that, you know, we're going to give our money away, but 
share the resources, share our sales. So it's a very capitalist place, very much a place concerned with industry. Part of that comes from some of our roots with the Puritans and the Protestant work ethic. But the idea that in America, you know, what you do is very much pushed, um, you know, gainful employment, that sort of thing. Sell, sell, sell is very much the American way. One that kind of goes along with it, but I do want to mention is kind of a subset of that, is the idea that America in this time period is very centered on producerism. Uh, the capitalism and industrialism is very focused on the producer side. America before this time period, before 1945, is not too interested in being the world's marketplace. Um, you know, we do have a lot of money. Well, we don't have that much money right now. We're about to get a ton of money after World War II. Uh, the idea being that we're more interested in producing stuff for the world, not necessarily buying the rest of the world's stuff. That is going to change. That's actually a major change in the United States is a shift to a very consumer-centric society. It actually happens very quickly. Um, if you get more into the weeds about it, if you, if you talk to other historians like me, uh, we'll be arguing that this switch from a producer to a, a consumer-centric society probably began in the 1890s, some even say the 1920s. However, the economic realities of things like the Great Depression and World War II don't let it really spread to the rest of the country. After World War II, because of how bonkers good the economy is, people are more likely to get involved with it and more likely to be consumer. So, World War II happens. If you go over one slide, World War II happens. If you don't know World War II happens, it does. World War II happens, it does. Um, it's the U.S. and the other members of the Grand Alliance, the other members of the Grand Alliance, fighting against the Germans and the Japanese and also the Italians. But let's be real. The, the, main, the main emphasis, the main, the main people we're fighting against, it's two wars. One's in Europe, one's in Asia, one's against Germany, and I guess the Italians, and then Japan. And so you have this Grand Alliance. And even before the Cold War starts, in early 45, uh, sorry, early 45, in early 45, not 44, D-Day's in 44, but in early 45, uh, before Germany surrenders, uh, before, you know, but people know the war's going to end. Everybody is very sure the war's going to end. Uh, the three main members, the three real strong members of the Grand Alliance meet in a place called Yalta. It's a um, resort on the Black Sea in Russia. And basically Stalin, FDR, and Churchill <coughs> meet. Stalin... FDR and Churchill meet. It's our last meeting. It's pretty much where they decide what is going to happen after the war is over. They know the war is going to be over. They know the war is going to be over. Everybody knows the war is going to be over. Everybody knows that, you know, the Germans are eventually going to be defeated. It's only a matter of time. Likewise, the Japanese are going to be defeated. It's only a matter of time, too. Uh, this is not the early war where there's still a sense of contingency that maybe Hitler might win. Or the Japanese might be so ingrained in the Pacific that they're going to get the U.S. to sue for peace, you know, and start negotiating. Uh, by this time, it is very evident that the war is going to be over. And now we're getting into what everybody wants. What is everybody wanting? Because above all else, nobody wants another world war. Um, if you know too much about World War II, uh, think about World War I. Uh, a lot of the beginnings of World War II happened because of the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, the way that a lot of uh, 
reparations and punishment was handed against Germany was part of the reason that Hitler was able to come into power. Likewise, the way that Italy and Japan were not given territory, even though they were members of the uh, of the winning side of World War I, is also one of the reasons why they have grudges and World War II happens. So everybody is very cognizant of the fact that we might have another World War and nobody wants a World War III because, guys, World War II was bad. World War II was super bad. World War II, I know you might think of it as a happy war and... You know, we see the movies, and, and, and for America, it is a fairly happy war, but for the rest of the world, World War II is devastating. Uh, anywhere from 50 to 100 million people died because of World War II. That's bad. Uh, the, the country that suffered the most is Russia. Russia suffers the most. Russia in this time period is led by Stalin. Uh, if you read the Gaddis book, it talks about Stalin, calls him the old battle-scarred tiger. I love that description of, I love that description of Stalin. This idea that he's older. He's tired. He's, he's killed probably more people than anybody except Truman coming up. And he is just like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired. I don't like to fight too much anymore. And what he's looking for is security. Stalin wants security. Stalin is convinced there's going to be another world war. You read this in Gaddis. And he's convinced it's going to be between the uh, capitalist countries. He thinks there's going to be a World War III. And he doesn't want Russia to be any part of this. He's like, guys, we almost fell because of World War II. Uh, we, we lost the most. Uh, Russia lost about 20 million soldiers and about another 5 million civilians. 25 million people. 25 million people. They fought the Nazis by themselves for about two, three years, pretty much, like by themselves, you know, while the U.S. is futzing around and, you know, oh, we're taking North Africa, oh, we're taking Italy, uh, the U.S. Is, is futzing around and now Russia is fighting them by themselves. This is really reflected in the casualties because Stalin, you know, the Russians lose about 25 million people total. The U.S. loses about 400,000. About 400,000 people die in World War II. That's soldiers and civilians. If you do the math, it's about 62.5. That's the ratio. So for every one U.S. soldier who was killed, about 62.5 Russians were killed. That's a huge gap, especially when you claim your allies. And Stalin's very resentful of this fact, but he also feels that he has earned the right to do whatever he wants because of his expenditures and blood. And so what he wants is security, which means basically he can take over all the territory he wants. You'll learn more about that in Gaddis. For FDR, the Americans, they want markets. Gaddis does another good job of explaining this. Uh, basically, the Great Depression happens for a lot of different reasons, but one of the big reasons is that production was super high after World War I. Now, here's the thing. In theory, that sounds great. Everybody loves higher production. The problem is when you have more products, when you have demand, that's when you start having issues with money. And so the U.S. wants to make sure we don't have another depression, and they want to do that by being able to sell to whoever they want. That's why they want markets. The U.S. wants to be able to sell to whoever they want. Now, remember, this goes pretty well in hand with the U.S.'s old way of being industrialist or capitalist, selling to whoever. Except now they have even more products to sell because production like quadruples during World War II. U.S. manufacturing is completely unimpeded during the war. And pretty much everybody else in the world, every other industrialized country in the world... Their manufacturing has been completely demolished by World War II. You know, in places like England and Germany and France, factories had been destroyed. They had been bombed. Uh, U.S. factories were never bombed. In fact, nothing in the U.S. was bombed during World War II. 
Now, I'm sure some of you smartasses are thinking, hold on, Tully, what about Pearl Harbor? And maybe some of you are like, oh, what about that one island in, 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 in Alaska where the Japanese did? Yeah, okay, fine. But neither Alaska nor Hawaii was a state in that time period. And the U.S. mainland, like continental U.S., like the, four, the lower 48, if you will, they were completely unimpeded during World War II. There were no you know, bombs dropped in Dallas or what have you. So that's what that's what they want. Uh, the other member of the Grand Alliance who makes it to Yalta is Winston Churchill in Britain. Uh, Churchill realizes that England's time of the sun is over. The British Empire is going to be done. Um, they're you know the the colonies are far too expensive to maintain. They've, they've suffered a lot during the war. Their infrastructure is completely bombed because of the London Blitz and other things. And basically what Churchill wants, what England wants, is to become like ancient Greece. In the sense that, you know, first it was ancient Greece and it kind of went down. But then Rome came up and then Greece was able to take a supporting stand to um, Rome. You know, basically like, you know, give them the culture, give them some gods, uh, you know, teach them language and stuff. Uh, you know, Greeks became a lot of the tutors in ancient Rome. And that's pretty much what Churchill wants. He's like, look, the, the Britain's time is over. You know, the the uh, the 19th century was Britain's century, but the sun is starting to set on the British Empire, and now we should do what we can to support the Americans in their endeavor. Now, there's two other members of the Grand Alliance. There's two other members of the Grand Alliance who are not at Yalta, but they do have a role during World War II. The first one is France. France is another member of the Grand Alliance, uh, theoretically speaking, the U.S. and France have never gone to war with each other. They are, they are theoretically our oldest ally, going back from the time of the Revolution. But during World War II, unlike World War I, in World War Wan, World War Wan, sorry, that was a weird pronunciation, World War I, uh, most of the fighting on the Western Front was done in France. I mean, you could still go to France today. And I've been lucky to go to France a couple times. Hopefully you'll get the chance to go to France. And you can still see the scars of World War I throughout France. Uh, throughout France, you'll see these battlefields from World War I, where the land is still utterly devastated by the Western Front, trench warfare, things like that. Pretty much the vast majority of World War I, at least the Western Front, was fought in France. Not the case for World War II, because France is occupied by the Nazis fairly early. Hitler takes over pretty much all of France fairly early, uh, puts in a puppet state, puts in a puppet state. Uh, you have de Gaulle serving as, theoretically, uh, de Gaulle's a French general who, theoretically, is like the leader in exile of France. A um, bit more of a politician than that. So when America comes into France during D-Day... Uh, they're very keen to be like, look, we're not liberating France. We're letting the French people do that. We're not taking over this territory. Yes, the Nazis took you over, but America's not going to do that. Uh, France's main interest in all this is to rebuild. Like I said, France is not at Yalta, but they desperately want to rebuild. Uh, you know, get the Nazis out and really kind of rebuild their society, rebuild their country. They feel like they don't really get a place at the table for World War II because they weren't really a part of it. They didn't do too much of the fighting. Yes, you have members of the French Resistance, but they don't do too much of the foreign fighting. This is not World War I where they feel like France has a, you know, they've had the most expenditures, their land was the most devastated, uh, they have a rightful state at the table. France is like, you know what, we're your ally, thank you for liberating us, but uh, we'll kind of let y'all take point on this one. So they want to rebuild. This also has to do with colonies as well. Now, the French Empire is not as grand and expansive as the British Empire was, but they still have a lot of land possessions. They still have a lot of land possessions throughout, throughout the world. Uh, places like Indochina, that's modern-day Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Uh, a lot of North Africa, 
Libya, places like that. They are also controlled by um, Algeria. It's another one. Uh, they are also controlled by the French. And France is kind of in the same position of, of England. It's like, look, we need to rebuild, and we don't have the time or resources to you know mess with all these other countries. It's like if your house and your uh, fishing camp get destroyed by a hurricane, you're probably going to focus on your house first. That's pretty much what France is feeling. Is look, we've had Hurricane Hitler come through, the Hurricane Nazis come through, uh, devastate France. In you know our in our fishing houses, our our, our cabins, you know our our beach resorts or whatever across the world, they're just going to have to wait. Now England and France combined to something that's called decolonization, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. The final member of the Grand Alliance is China. The final member of the Grand Alliance is China. Uh, China has been a U.S. ally pretty much since the modern day, since uh, open door policy, Boxer Rebellion, early 20th century. Um, China was not really ruled by an empire at this time period. They have a, a nationalist leader by the name of Chiang Kai-shek. However, before World War II, there's a civil war already going on in China between Chiang Kai-shek and the Chinese communists led by uh, Mao Zedong. Uh, the thing is, both sides kind of put their differences when it comes to the war. Basically, once World War II starts, they're like, look, I don't like you, but we hate the Japanese even worse. Uh, the Japanese are very brutal to the Chinese during World War II. In fact, the Japanese are brutal to a lot of people in Asia in World War II, which builds a lot of anti-Japanese uh, resentment. Um, this is going to be important when we start talking about Korea. So China, they've had a world... Sorry, they, 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 they lived through World War II. They had a civil war. They, they put the civil war to the side. And also, China suffers a lot during World War II. They suffer as much as anybody. Only Russia loses more people than China. Uh, the Chinese lose about 10 million people during World War II. About 10 million people die in China during World War II, most of them being civilians. Uh, the Chinese don't really field an army during World War II. It's mainly just civilians. Uh, during the Japanese occupation of places like Manchuria, which is in uh, north northeastern China, uh, the, yeah, the Japanese are very, very harsh to the, to the Chinese, but they're an American ally, and uh, they also have a very large population of about a billion people, which China still has about a billion people, which is seen as very, a very important market for the United States. So China's main goal is like kind of go back to the Civil War. Uh, for Mao Zedong and the communists, they want to take over. Uh, for Chiang Kai-shek, he wants to kick them out and maybe bring back more Americans, and most Americans... Most American businesses and governments support uh, Chiang Kai-shek during this time because of the possibility of a billion consumers. That'll become important later whenever China becomes communist. Spoiler alert. So if you go over one more, we're going to end with this. The points of contention between the U.S. and Russia. The points of contention between the U.S. and Russia. Now, as I said, Gaddis does a very good job of covering every single one of these uh, in his book. But I want you to think about that. I want you to think about these. Uh, I'll just explain some of these kind of early before you get going. Uh, the first one is a second front and a separate piece. These are both co combined for World War II. Um, for the longest time, the Russians are very upset with the United States for not having a second front. Uh, they feel that the U.S. is farting around. They're, they're not fighting the Nazis. The U.S. does not want to have um, large casualties, whereas Russia is in, you know, having nothing but casualties. Uh, specifically, remember, remember, never forget the ratio of for every one American soldier that dies, 62.5 Russian soldiers die. Uh, or Russians, I should say, because I'm including civilians in that number. 
So that's very much contention for Stalin. It's basically, why did America wait so long and incur more Russian losses? Now, for the Americans, they could rightfully say, hey, Stalin, you lasted as long as you did because your guys, because you were destroying everything with your whole scorched earth policy and, you know, the destroying Russian factories, the Russian soldiers who did survive were eating American-made rations, wearing American-made uniforms, and shooting American-made bullets. So, yeah, you had 25 million die. It might be 50 million died if we were not supplying you for all of World War II. The other point of contention linked to that is a separate piece. Um, Stalin was afraid, and the Americans were afraid, too, that they would not negotiate together when it came to Germany's surrender, particularly Germany's surrender. Um, other countries as well, but mainly Germany. Stalin was afraid that if the Americans took, a, you know, liberated, you know, got to Berlin first, captured Hitler first, uh, they would not be as harsh as the Russians would be. Uh, they would be a bit more magnanimous. They would not want to punish the Germans so hard. They would not want to p- punish Hitler so hard, mainly because they don't want to have a repeat of World War II and having a World War III happen, because what happened after World War I. But the Americans felt the same way, too. They felt that basically Stalin would shut them out because of his expenditures and basically set up a system which is Soviet-controlled and something the U.S. doesn't want because it would block markets. Now, both of these things are very much points of contention. Uh, same thing with the spheres of influence. This kind of goes hand-in-hand. Hand. Basically, uh, Stalin wanted to be able, to, and, and Gaddis does a very good job of explaining this. This is really just more of a supplement to that chapter that Gaddis does. Um, Stalin wanted to be able to influence whoever he wanted. Basically, be able to uh, impose Soviet rule, impose Soviet power, um, you know, kind of push other countries becoming communist, and do so with impunity. The United States wants to be able to like influence other countries to be a bit more capitalist, allow American markets. That's another big point of contention, particularly when it comes to Germany. Particularly where it comes to Germany, uh, Germany is ultimately split, uh, split four ways. Uh, England, France, America, and Russia. Pretty much England and France almost immediately are like, hey guys, we're out because we don't have the resources. We want to deal with our own homes, so America controls all of it. And so basically the idea being, you know, Germany is the most important piece of this puzzle, particularly in Europe. However Germany goes is pretty much who's going to control a lot of the uh, spheres of influence. Germany is a very important country in Europe. It's a very geographically important country because it's centrally located. And the fear being, not the fear, but the idea being whoever is in control of Germany, whoever's behind Germany, really is viewed as the quote-unquote winner of the war. So what they end up doing is splitting it, and how Germany goes is viewed as how the rest of Europe goes. Another point of contention is the atomic bomb. Um, You cannot undervalue just how important the atomic bomb was at the end of the war, because this was America's trump card. This was the one thing that could, like, out-kill Stalin. This, w- this, is, this gave America something that no other country had, a power no other country had, especially once they discovered how radiation worked. They're like, oh my gosh, we could have, like, unlimited energy, we could have, you know, we could drop bombs, we could pretty much demolish anybody at any given time. Doesn't matter how big your fortress is, doesn't matter how many warships you build, we could drop this one bomb, and it's more devastating than all that stuff put together. That totally changes the type of negotiations that happen because you can't have total war with an atomic bomb. This goes against everything in human history. Prior to this time, all wars were total wars. Any technology, any advantage you might have over the enemy, you used and you used hard. Now if the atomic bomb, the U.S. is like, we can't necessarily use that, that changes negotiations. 
Now, this isn't really directly between the U.S. and Russia, but it's an undercurrent, and that undercurrent is decolonization. Remember, England, France, uh, Germany to a much lesser extent, the European powers are like, hey, taking care of these colonies in Africa and Asia are very expensive. You know, the idea of having all this control is not viewed as in vogue. We need to cut. We need to cut things back. And we're going to give these territories theoretically their own rule. That doesn't happen. Because some of these areas have been ruled for centuries. A primo example is India. India had been under British control for literal centuries. And it has well over a billion people. It has well over a billion people. And pretty much England's like, all right, guys. All right, you know, all right, India. Which, by the way, India, if you don't know, is a very diverse place. Very religiously diverse. Very ethically diverse. I mean, yes, the British Empire, the British India becomes India and Pakistan and some other little countries in there. Theoretically, India is Hindu and Pakistan is Muslim, but that's just an oversimplification if there ever was one because it's a big cluster fudge. And by the way, Hinduism, if you don't know much about Hinduism, it too is an amalgamation of a lot of different religions and a lot of different people and also a lot of different languages. India's got a lot of different languages. Um... You know, most people speak Hindi, but that's not necessarily their first language. Same with English. Um, I, I know a, I know an Indian couple. This is one of my favorite couples. Um, one of my professors in undergrad. He was he was Indian, and his parents they were in they were not an arranged marriage. I believe they're actually a love marriage. But his dad spoke English as like his third language, and his mom spoke English as her fourth language. But that was the only language they had in common. Like the you know their first couple languages were like. Not that. They, they were not compatible. They were not, you know, they're from different parts of India. And so basically the language they spoke to each other was English, even though it was neither one of their, like, native tongues, ne neither one of their mother tongues, neither one of their first languages. And so you have this very diverse place with a lot of different people. And now England's saying, all right, guys, we're getting out. Which definitely leads a power vacuum. England and uh, France, but particularly England pulling out of places like the Middle East or Indochina, Causes of power vacuum and all of a sudden all sorts of new people are coming in. And oftentimes these areas are really leaking towards the U.S. or the Soviets for support. Now that's going to do it as kind of like a baseline, you know, undercurrent. What I want you to kind of know as we get into the class proper, um, you're going to be listening to one about Harry Truman and Dwight D. Eisenhower next. So I invite you to listen into that. So, uh, yeah, have a good one.